Hi, and welcome to the Think Fast podcast. My name is Simon Smith, and I am your host. If you're not familiar with this podcast, FAST with two T's stands for Focused Advancement with Speed, Tenacity, and Transparency. These are our core values at Benchside, where we use machine learning to help scientists bring novel medicine to patients faster. In this episode, I speak with James Malone, Senior Director of Engineering, Data, and Machine Learning at Benchside. James is one of the most knowledgeable and experienced people I'm aware of in the field of bioinformatics and biomedical machine learning. His career long predates the current hype cycle of AI for drug discovery. James began his academic work in this field in the early 2000s, then continued it through research engagements, entrepreneurial ventures, and industry-leading technology firms. In this conversation, we talk about bioinformatics, ontologies, the use of machine learning for biomedical research, the future of the field, and more. Hi, James. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Well, it's great to have you. I want to start by getting a sense of your current role at BenchSize. So what does that entail? What are you currently focused on? So my official title is so I'm Senior Director of Engineering, Data, and Machine Learning. I oversee the data and machine learning management teams, really. So I don't day-to-day -day manage all of the team members. I manage the managers. My main focus is providing them with sort of support they need to, to execute on roadmaps, help them in a position where their teams can best function, uh, you know, contribute more widely to engineering culture and vision, or vision we're trying to foster within BenchSci, and then try to plan with the teams for areas for innovation and growth over the next year or two as well. So a, a bit of techie stuff, a bit of people management and support. And you bring a ton of experience, relevant experience to that role. You've been involved with machine learning for life sciences long before the current wave of AI hype in this space. Can you talk a bit about your career trajectory from your educational background and your research work all the way through to your work in industry? I can. Yeah, that, that's a nice introduction. Nice way of saying you're quite old, really. <laughs> experienced. Uh, experienced. I like the word experienced. experienced. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff I predate. I wouldn't want to go through. So yeah, so I, I guess going back to my undergraduate days. So my, it started, I think when I, my final year project, my honors project for my undergraduate degree, I, I used a library called a language called MATLAB to build a data mining package called Armada for anyone interested. And that had lots of downloads as well. So it was just to brag out there. I had 30,000 downloads across the years oh. of users for it. But the cool thing was I built the data mining package to basically look through pretty random data to find patterns in it. But one of the data sets I used and I wrote up on was around a, a biological data set, something in the life sciences. And it was really cool being able to look at that data and run some something computational over it and extract some sort of threads of something interesting from this kind of mess of, of data points. And that's what really got me interested in the space, not just of like doing data analysis, but also specifically in the life sciences, like the things you're pulling out were meaningful in some way. And it made me think it was a really interesting area to have actual impact. So I continued that actually this, I had the same supervisor for my PhD. So I continued that on after that project where I started using machine learning. So neural networks at the time. So none of the steep learning stuff It was all just machine. It's all just basic neural networks at the time, looking at proteomics data. And that gave me a nice sort of broader view of the domain. So I wasn't 
didn't do lots of formal training in the biology, but it gave me some grounding and a, a bit of a wider perspective in how some machine learning approaches can benefit you know, being applied to biological data patterns. That led me to do more broadly AI stuff at Edinburgh University as a research fellow. So then I kind of did a bit of bio, a bit of non-bio as well with some companies. And then I joined the European Bioinformatics Institute after a couple of years down in Cambridge. And yeah, there I was really exposed to a lot of kind of biological problems. It's a really big institute. It's an academic institute, provides a lot of the world's open data and bioinformatics, things we used to. So big databases on genes and proteins, interactions, et cetera. Yeah, that gave me a really good insight into big data and how those problems are, are looked at and how they're tackled and where the gaps are. As part of my last couple of years there, so I was there for eight years, last couple of years that I worked on a, a, a big project, um, which is now called Open Targets. It wasn't called that at the time, but it's now called Open Targets. It was a collaboration at the time between the EBI, the Sanger Institute and GSK. And so it was quite a major collaboration for us at the time, a big one with a farmer. And it was the first time that I'd done a lot of industry workshop stuff at EBI, but it was the first time I got really exposed to like how big pharma were doing target discovery in R&D. And I worked with some brilliant people across the Institute and within GSK. And I learned so much from that. And it really gave me the appetite to say, okay, I think we could do more with the stuff we've been doing at EBI, with ontologies and some of the ML stuff we're doing. I think we could do more in that space. So by the time I finished, I started a company building some of those sorts of tools. We had three or four big pharma in our books before I was acquired by Cybite, which was my last job. And again, started building more tooling to do this sort of work with ontologies and started building out some of the AI offerings as well, using language modeling and so on. So it's interesting that there was a gap really when I was at EBI, I didn't really do a lot of ML work, but now the last sort of four or five years we've done, I've done quite a bit more sort of like riding a bike, except it's interesting. So like riding a bike, you don't forget, but that the bike now is like, it's like a monster truck. <laughs> and it's also on like primetime television shows. Everybody knows what it is and they all want to watch it kind of thing. So it's a bigger beast to ride but also has a quite a lot more impact, I think. So yes, that's kind of my full circle story. When you were telling that story, you talked about bioinformatics, and I know we're also going to talk about ontologies. Can you define bioinformatics and ontologies for listeners? And there's probably some nuance people might define them in different ways, but maybe give the definition that is your working definition. So the best definition I've seen of bioinformatics is it's all, it's about applying computers to understand biology. That's in the, in the sort of shorter sense. So taking computational approaches to understand something about biology, that's basically it. It has a broad meaning, but at the heart, applying computational approaches, so the informatics bit, to specific data tasks within the biological sciences. It encompasses a lot of things. So techniques from areas like statistics, computer science, including ML, but it also includes the bio part importantly. So working in partnership with um, scientists, domain experts, such as bio curators as well. So it's very much about the marriage of people working in science and people applying computational approaches to resolve, to try and tackle problems in that space. And then ontologies are within bioinformatics, a particular subset of approaching certain information problems. I would, so they're a slightly different field, I would say. So ontologies broadly are, are different. They're a different field, a different, different subject area, but yes, they're a tool really that's used within bioinformatics to model knowledge. In the life sciences specifically, we really mean building out models of consensus. So things we agree on between some community typically, and they're used to model the things of interest. So for us, biologically relevant entities like diseases and drugs and cell types and that sort of thing. So modeling those things making the relationships between those things, so capturing and defining what a relationship is between those things, 
and then describing the rules of membership to be one of those things. So for instance, what is a cell? What is a cell nucleus? What is the relationship between a cell and a cell nucleus? What does it mean to be a cell or a cell nucleus? Can they be the same thing or are they very different things? And therefore, what is the rule to say they can't be the same thing? But importantly, there are also things that you can use with, again, computers and computation to attach descriptions to data. So we build this model of knowledge. We can attach that to data to describe the data. But because ontologies are also built by humans, can also understand those descriptions. So it helps computers understand the data, but it also helps humans understand the descriptions of the data, what we call metadata, ultimately. Yeah, and one of the big issues in biology that I learned a lot more about when I joined BenchSci is that because science is so democratic, there's no central body necessarily defining what everything is going to be named. So you end up with proteins and genes that have 20, 30 aliases, and it just makes it very hard to know whether you're talking about the same thing. So defining these ontologies standardizes nomenclature and helps yeah. two people know that they're saying the same thing. So that's one of the challenges, this alias problem. What are some of the other big challenges in the life sciences that mean we need machine learning, bioinformatics, and ontologies to address and to solve? So I think probably the biggest challenge we face is just this, the, the big data problem. So the, the scale complexity of the data that we have now, that we can measure at many different levels, all these different omics we have now. So we can go from very tiny fragments of, of RNA right through to kind of big populations. So we can measure all of those different size things and capture data about all of them and often at scale. We can do that very rapidly. And there's a lot of that data now in the public domain, which you know, is often talked about in negative ways. In many ways, you, you see papers and articles talking about tsunamis of data and so on. And, and while it's a complex challenge, it's not a burden. It's a huge gift, actually, that we have all this data, but it's also a huge challenge. And I think you're right, the bit where we come to standards, which is one of the ontology things we're trying to tackle, that plays a role in trying to think about how we describe that data so we can use it, but also then combine it with our own data. So data that's being generated in a lab inside wherever a farmer or some other organization. So that's a challenge. How do we have all of our data? And we've got lots of it. And there's all this public domain data that's also really useful. There's lots of that. How do we bring all that together, make some sense of it, combine it so that we can actually do something computational with it and at scale and quickly. There's lots of stuff in the machine learning space, I think, where there's a lot of impact now as well. You've seen a lot of advances that the really cool one very recently was all the deep mind work on Alvin Fault, of course, which is quite a bit outside of my area of expertise for sure, that the way they were able to produce this, these amazing models for doing protein folding prediction. And so determining how a string of amino acids folds into this 3D shape is kind of amazing. That's, that's been a huge area of challenge that actually they've, you know, in some ways they've gone some lengths to solve. That also used a ton of public data to train those models. So that also shows you the challenge of the data's there. But now we're try trying to work out how to pull that together and, you know, make something of it and actually execute on it. So I think that's a really cool. There's tons of others, I think, how we bring machine learning into clinical. How, mm -hmm. do we, how can we bring, make real meaningful clinical predictions? That's a really big area, I think. But then it speaks to one of the other challenges, which is how do we make AI approaches more explainable? What do we do if we have an AI system that works, but isn't transparent in its reasoning? Mm -hmm. Do we want that? Is that what we want for issues of trust, et cetera? So yeah, I think they're, they're big challenges that we still face in the life sciences. If nothing from the COVID point of view, remiss not to mention it. <laughs> I think bioinformatics has shown its worth with a lot of what's going on with COVID, that ability to orchestrate lots of data quickly have that discovery at pace and scale has been incredible. Manually combining all of that is probably infeasible. So combine that with the area of using scientists like biocurators with machine learning and all the other approaches, I think is a really 
yeah, has shown the value that we have in having lots of data and being able mm -hmm. to act on it quickly. Yeah, I want to come back to the trans algorithmic transparency question and maybe touch on a couple of other topics there. But before we go there, I want to just get your thoughts on why we seem to be in a, a period of rapid improvement in area of applying computation to biology. So some of the problems you want, you started working on early in your career probably weren't solvable at the time due to not having the hardware and algorithms or conceptual breakthroughs. But what are some of the things that have, have really allowed us to start unlocking biology and accomplishing things like AlphaFold? Is it largely that we have better hardware and we have better machine learning algorithms and we have better graph databases that we can store this stuff in? Or there are other things that maybe I'm not thinking about. Yeah, for sure. All that. I think, I think when I first started working with this, getting hold of big data sets was hard. So there was limited data availability in the public domain. That's definitely a factor. The levels of granularity that you could measure were also more limited. To do that at scale and at pace was more limited. So we can measure a lot more now for sure. So, and no doubt there's a lot more in the public domain. So that also advances things quite rapidly because that data is there for everyone. It's typically free. Um, yeah, compute power is probably the biggest one, I think, especially in the ML front. Comparatively speaking, it's abundant, it's cheap. You think about the sort of things you could spin up on a some cloud service for $100 now. It's it, it's frightening if you think about that 20 years ago where we were. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, that that's had a huge impact. And I think that's probably one of the biggest ones. I think we shouldn't overlook. So the data, yes. The compute power, yes, definitely. There's also something to be said for the democratization of the code base, the fact that we have all these really amazing Python libraries, for example, the PyTorch, the scikit-learn, TensorFlow, Spacey, all that stuff that's out there, free to use. That's also empowered a lot of people to learn how to use these techniques fairly quickly and start applying them to real world problems at pace as well. So I think that's also had a huge impact that you don't have to start from scratch for a lot of this stuff. So I think that's good. And definitely on the ML front and the ontologies part, yeah, I think where we are now is very different from where we were when I first started building them in late 2000s, but you know, it, it does take a while, I think, for standards to settle and the ontologies we use in the life sciences, they're, they're more or less standards now. So they've matured a lot. And I think the tooling around those things has also matured. We've learned to build tools that more widely appreciate the audience is not just someone who's an ontology expert that we might want that scientist to be able to reuse and contribute to those things. I think that's had a big impact. I think in industry, generally speaking, so that they've certainly embraced a lot of this now, ML definitely, ontologies, yes, also in the last five or six years, it's totally changed. They use them a lot now, I think. So that's changed too. And there's other things like the pre-competitive nature of some of the collaborations in pharma now. That's fairly new, really. I don't know when the first one was, but there's certainly a lot more in the last decades. And I think that sharing the burden of that, sharing their data, you know, they will also say, well, actually, if we're going to share lots of data, we probably also need to use standards too. And therefore let's try and maybe use some common standards to do that stuff. And ontologies play, you know, quite a nice role to help on that as well. So I think that has impact there too, of that maybe we weren't, we didn't have early 2000s. Mm -hmm. I've also noticed in industry, and we work with a lot of the world's biggest pharmaceutical companies, there's an attitude shift as well, where they recognize the value of data, where, whereas I think before the IP wasn't necessarily in the data that they had, but in the assets, the molecules or, or so on. And now there's an increasing recognition that they're sitting on a ton of data. And if they find a way to organize and unlock it, that's a huge asset. But as, if they don't, then it's just like oil in the ground that you haven't tapped. And so I think there's a real shift in terms of the attitude towards data assets that's 
allowed them to justify investment in trying to tap that and better store it. And, I, and that's been a shift, I think, as well. I'm not sure if you've seen that too. 100%. Yeah, I, I think so. There's been some big efforts in some of the partners we've had in the past that I've worked with. I mentioned Open Targets. That was a big one where I think they wanted to tap into what they had and what was in the public domain, bring it together and be able to exploit it to its fullest value, really. And I'm sure we still haven't gotten there, but we've done a better job now, I think, publicly and privately to do that. There's, a, there's probably tons of insights buried in this stuff. So it's about how can you extract the value from all of the data that you have whether it's publications or whether it's experimental data or clinical record, et cetera. There's a lot there. I totally agree. I think people understand now that people might be their primary assets in most organizations, but second to that certainly is the data that they have for everything they've done over the last X number of years. Yeah. So I want to switch gears a little bit now and maybe talk or think a little bit outside of the box. When you first joined BenchSci, we talked about, or I mentioned to you, my interest in large language models like OpenAI's GPT-3. And I've done a lot of experimentation through their beta in their playground with all kinds of things. I, I, I have it as a hobby to think up the craziest thing that I can throw at it. And I'm <laughs> constantly amazed at what it's able to do with single shot or sometimes zero shot learning. It's amazing. And I wonder to myself, we, I think about all the, the custom machine learning models that we build in the biological space. And then I wonder these general purpose large language models like GPT-3, which you can also now fine tune on, on biology, are they going to play an increasingly important role because they just come with so much knowledge, let's call it knowledge or however we want to define uh, an AI mind out of the box. And they just seem so powerful. So I know you've played around with it, but what are your thoughts on the role that increasingly large language models might play? I noticed you weren't going to share any of your wacky ideas with us as well. <laughs> I'll, give you, I'll give you one. I created a GPT-3 version of my father and then allowed my siblings to have conversations with him via a chat interface that I created. So all I did was fine tune it on some of the things my father said or written. And it's just amazing. It just very quickly learns to speak the way that, you know, we expect him to speak. So that's just one example. That's very cool. Okay. Yeah, that's definitely wilder than the stuff I've been doing, but that's given me quite a lot of ideas, kind of future parenting tips when I'm not needed. Uh, I think, yeah, so are the language models important now? Yeah, for sure. You know, we use them. I, I know a lot, lot of other biotechs use them as well. So they play a big role in what we do already, I think, in some of our ML approaches and probably will increasingly do so, I think, for next year in particular. I think next year is a big year for our ML growth within BenchSci. So I think it's exciting. Um, the role that things like GPT plays, yeah, I, I think we've certainly been using them already to be able to extract things from data now, not GPT, but some of the other models that exist. Where will it go? What will it do that will have an impact on our domain? It's hard to say. I think some of the areas that I'm personally interested in exploring, I think the conversational AI aspect is really interesting. A bit like what you'd said, actually, using that as a mechanism to scrutinize data in a way that is probably not the same when you're just writing in keywords. I think that's quite an interesting avenue. And I know that's pretty hot sort of area right now. So not chatbots, it's different. Mm -hmm. It's about having a conversation, giving you results and then letting then the, the, the bot responds with something a bit more intuitive about maybe you should think about these things in the data and letting you go back and forward to explore. 
I think that's something they're pretty capable of doing. Obviously, it requires context, probably requires fitting to that particular problem in the biospace. So that's definitely an area I think would be interesting to have an impact in. I've seen a lot on text generation. And I think apart from the kind of conversational stuff, I'm still not sure on that. I don't, I'd love to think of a really good application mm. generating lots of text, doing that kind of type ahead, complete stuff. And I've seen it generate poems and songs and things, and that's all good. But I, I still haven't seen a really compelling use case yet in the, in the life sciences space, but there probably is one. I think the one that got me excited with the GPT, as you alluded to that I was playing with, was the one for generating codes from natural language. So that, that was a really cool one. Again, I'd only really played generating ontologies and generating codes to build ontologies as well. I think that's a really interesting area of work. And I think it will probably lower the barrier to coding, mm. that you'd be able to say something and then it potentially could write a little script for you. So find me genes that have this sort of property and look in these databases and search in this way, get me the top 100 and order them by blah. That kind of, that's the kind of stuff I could imagine it would be able to do for you. Take it away and think, I know how to do that in whatever Java or Python, write a script, run it and fetch you some results back. So you're talking higher levels of abstraction that you already have on modern high level languages like Java and Python. So I can see that being something where, you, mm -hmm. where it might have an impact, which seems weird because you're talking about these language models, which are very much about looking at understanding natural language, but actually you can now start thinking about how you can apply them to coding problems, which is it's quite remarkable, really. Yeah, I think about, because they've been experimenting now in partnership with GitHub and, and Microsoft, right? Rolling out their, I forget what, Codex. So this ability yeah. to, and some of the examples where you take a comment and you just, oh, this function does this and it writes a function beautifully. I think also this maybe shows a direction where we combine these neural networks with symbolic language and which is maybe a better able to encode. It's, it's a better way to accomplish certain things. So yeah. Rather than saying, I don't know, generate some ontology tree structure. It, you could say, write a function that generates an ontology street, uh, tree function. And that also becomes much more transparent because you can see exactly what that function is doing, but you didn't have to write it yourself. Yeah. So I think it's an amazing time. Also, the what I understand, GPT-4 is going to be multimodal, mm -hmm. where, whereas right now it's text only. And to me, it just makes so much sense. Like when you talk to a kid and, and you say the word dog, they don't just think about how to spell the word dog. They also think about what a dog looks like. And and so multimodality could be just a major conceptual leap. I think it's what's really interesting to me is looking at what my kids do at the minute with coding like languages like Scratch and so on as well. Mm -hmm. You can code quite visually with a lot of those programming languages. And it's yet another level of abstraction above actually writing lines of text. And it does make me think in the future, will we end up with developers who are, they're trained in a slightly different way. They're trained to be able to speak machine learning language in the way that many years ago, people used to be trained in building things in assembly language. And then it was C and Java and Python and so on. Will we end up with a new generation of developers that are trained to be able to write, you know, code by being able to speak the, la the language that mm. these, these language models can best understand that mm -hmm. they can optimize building code. And so I think there's a lot there, I think, yeah. You know, yeah, prompt engineering, right? People are working very yeah. much on the problem of what are the best prompts to get the best outputs. So given all of this progress, what are some of the things that still hold us back from wider application of machine learning powered tools for biomedicine and biomedical ontology and so on? What are some of the big challenges that, that you foresee, so let's say in the next you know, year? Well, I think they are being certainly used more widely, but I guess there was initially some 
lack of adoption, I think, in some of this space. And maybe that slowed things down a little bit as to where we might be otherwise. There's always a little bit of lag, I think, in some of the bigger industries for adopting these things. So perhaps that's still a challenge that we want to get people properly ramping up. I think it was the same with the ontology space where I think the stuff we did 10 years ago was good, but took a while before it was really adopted and bought into. So in the last five years, that's changed completely in industry. I think they've woken up much more quickly to the ML space. So yeah, I think they've woken up to that for sure. So I think that's good. What other things? Well, I think they're still quite, to be able to pull the data together and use it, it's still quite a challenge, I think. So getting the data, shaping it, that's still quite laborious at times. It requires people to be able to go through often quite a lot of data and put it together, it goes back to the big data challenges ultimately that we still need to fully solve. How do you get the data you need? How do you clean it up so you can do something useful with it, unite it with the data you have with anything you know, that you don't want to miss? That's one of those laborious challenges. It's less of a, it's a bit technical, but also, you know, a bit of a, we need the people to be able to do that as well. I think other things, yeah, other challenges that we have, I, I think that there's definitely a risk that we, we churn out a lot of ML stuff that we write a lot of code and build a lot of models and people try things, but then they sort of disappear into the ether, <laughs> you know, because it, it can become easier and easier to build these things and they can float off and do something. And then nobody really owns that. So you can definitely end up with quite a bit of technical debt being built up. And I think it's, that's given birth to this sort of ML ops type engineer as well, of which we do have some within BenchSide. Yeah. I, I think that what's the infrastructure, how do we maintain them? How do we keep them maturing? I think they're all things we need to tackle, but they're, they're infrastructurally challenges. I think things we can overcome. I think the, some of the mindset things around what can, what are the limits of where we would feasibly apply these approaches, these machine learning approaches, that's probably the bigger challenge. What, what do we really accept? Where do we want to actually put these things? And I mentioned the clinical stuff earlier, there's going to be a line somewhere where we just won't accept mm. these approaches. And, and I think we still don't know quite where that is, but you know, there, there's lots of evidence around, you know, people prefer a human to give them a decision that they can talk about a bit. And explain like a clinician over a system that's an ML is heavily optimized. Maybe it's 20% more accurate, <laughs> but it's completely black box and can't explain anything. They'd rather take their chances with typically they'd rather take chances with uh, someone who's perhaps less likely to get it right, but can explain at least their thinking. So that sense of empathy, I think is, is a little bit lost in the ML approaches and that's a definite, you know, societal challenge. And I just don't know where we sit on that, honestly. I think we have to work out as a society what we're prepared to accept and use in those sorts of spaces. So that's a challenge for sure. Yeah, I personally think that it'll come down to we will trust the we will trust vetted algorithms the same way we trust FDA approved drugs, let's say. And mm -hmm. but we still won't want the diagnosis to necessarily come from a machine because you want to talk to a human. So I think a human paired with a really powerful diagnostic engine, like we're seeing now with radiology, is probably the model for the future. And then what's important for healthcare professionals is to be empathetic and good communicators and have great bedside manner and know how to use the tools and understand the limitations of those tools. But I'm sure you've been through the healthcare system in your life. I've been through the healthcare system. The inefficiencies there and the fact that you can see three different people and get three completely different diagnoses. And it's very clear that there are certain aspects of healthcare that humans are not very good at, at least from a consistency standpoint. And I'm not, I'm not sure humans can always explain their diagnoses either. They oftentimes also have biases that cut, creep in and they're not aware of them. Yeah, I think you're right. I think one of the, 
one of the areas where we, we, if we use these as clinical aids, I think we're in pretty safe territory, especially as you said, the images, the computer is diagnosing something in some way. And actually the clinician is taking that diagnosis and deciding what to do with it. Ultimately, if the clinician can look at it and explain it also and say, okay, I understand why this has been classified in this way, then they can explain that to a patient and they agree. I think that's fine. I think in those sort of systems, we're good. They already exist as well. It's the other side of it. I think where we rely on them more heavily, perhaps we're not ready for that sort of, yeah, I'm probably also not ready for those sorts for those sorts of approaches either. But I agree, people look for empathy, especially when it's around, you know, human health. What do you think, if, if we cast your mind forward a little bit further, let's say a five-year horizon, which at the pace of change just seems crazy. If you think back five years, obviously there was no COVID. There, there was, we were just at the beginning of kind of the deep learning revolution. Five years is a long time, but can you make some forecasts of where you think this is going? least from a trend perspective, what are some of the big things that you're most excited about? I think the first thing we can't ignore is the impact it's had on the initial parts of what we're doing with vaccine developments as a society. I think that's, I've read papers where it's certainly been used to help do things like filter out certain, you know, surface proteins on the virus, et cetera. So that there's applications for this already. I imagine that a lot of the investment that's going on right now in vaccine development to utilize machine learning will, will happen in anger over the next three, five, 10 years, whatever. So it's helped a bit already. I think that it's probably set a precedent for how we're going to try and do things in the future, I suspect. So not just for producing vaccines, I think for a lot of other areas as well. So I think that's going to be a big area of investment. We just, we can't ignore that right now. It's on everyone's mind. Mm -hmm. So I think that there'll be a big, not just ML, but certainly in ML, I think how we can use that in vaccinology is going to be a a big area, I'm sure. Beyond that, yeah, I, I think the way we do data collection is quite interesting. Again, there's been a kind of knock-on effect from COVID, but it's not the start of it. I think capturing real world data and using that alongside other indicators that we can capture as well, I think is really interesting. These diverse sources of data that people talk about in the COVID case, it's not just what are people doing? It's also what's everyone doing collectively? What are the signs and symptoms that a whole society has? How are we moving right through to collecting samples from sewage from an area and sampling that and testing it? You know, there's, there's a lot of fairly, what look like fairly random data samples that you can pull out and collate in some way and, and make some inference from. And I think pulling those sorts of things together is going to be a really, it's going to be a really big challenge again, another big data challenge, but I think will be a big area of focus in the future. In the UK, at least the, the focus of the app that was created here for tagging, checking in every day and telling, you know, the, the central university, what you were doing and how you felt, et cetera, that led to some changes in how we were diagnosing signs and symptoms for COVID it's had a big impact. And it's, I think that's pretty major. That was like a bit of a crossing the Rubicon moment, I think. So I think we, we will probably continue along that path as well with some, some caveats to it that doesn't always work, but so I think that, yeah, there's lots of others without being too hyperbolic about it all. Um, yeah, I think the way we digest scientific information will probably still change. I think the way we summarize complex documents, extract key facts from that, the pace of publications at the minute is very high. So helping us find the data we're interested in, extracting those insights in whatever form we decide, whether it's something computation, like a graph or something more textual, I think that's going to continue to advance as well. So I think that's going to be, a, you know, a big area. Obviously there's lots of other stuff outside of the areas I work in, like some of the, you know, the clinical things we talked about, which are super exciting. Mm -hmm. uh, never mind self-driving cars. 
<laughs> self-driving ambulances. Yeah. Let's not even talk about AI music, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was interesting you brought up self-driving cars because as you were talking about all this publicly available data for biology, which is what partly has fueled the rise of machine learning, the use of machine learning in biology is that you look at other areas where we're trying to apply machine learning that require tr tremendous amounts of data and self-driving cars is one of them. And there is no public data set of self-driving car experiences, let's say. And so these private companies are having to build that all from scratch, like Waymo and Tesla. Can you imagine if there actually were this huge repository? Let's say 10, 15 years ago, governments of the world realized that we were going to be moving into a self-driving car universe and establish a regulation that every vehicle has to now gather data on driving conditions and so on, and then made that uh, data set available to anybody who wanted to develop self-driving cars. We'd probably have them long ago. And uh, so I just think there's a real value in, and COVID's a, a, another great example, as you pointed out, of these public data gathering projects that then allow industry to leverage those assets to develop new technologies on top of the data. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I it's an interesting question about what you would do about, you know, asking everyone to capture their own driving. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so sure. like that to a central database, there'd be a lot of people probably opt out of that. But yeah. you may, you know what, your insurance will be lower if you, I don't know, we can figure yeah, out the yeah. incentives. Yeah. But, uh, it'd be useful though. I think you're right. Capturing that data would be useful. There's part of the whole you know, question, the challenge is what data is useful to capture and how sure. do we know whether it's useful to capture or not? Yeah, definitely in the self-driving car thing. Yeah, looking back, it would be great to have all that. But yeah, now we could capture so much data about everything. How much do we want to give up really? Yeah, and and it all, yeah, for sure. This, another tangential direction we could go in is to talk about something I'm very excited about with regard to blockchain and some of the new emerging blockchain use cases in healthcare, like nebula genomics that allow patients to own their data, control access to their data and monetize their own data. I think yeah. that's a very exciting direction, but that's probably too much of a tangent for the time we have left. <laughs> I want to jump into what I'm calling the fast questions, where we talk about uh, different things related to our values at bench size, so focus, advancement with speed, tenacity, and transparency. I want to start with focus. And so one of the challenges you just mentioned is there's so many options for technology and, and data and so on. So how do you decide when you're evaluating which technologies teams you're working with should pay attention to, which ones to, to really focus on and which ones to keep an eye on? Do you have some kind of heuristic, oh, once 25% of developers are using this, then that's something to look at. Or once there are three published papers, then that's when it's worth looking at. Or is it a little bit more intuitive and, and less codified? Um, I think at the minute, it's probably a little bit less codified than that. I think we look at what our core mission fit is. So we have a, a set of problems and we want to try and tackle those problems. So what's the best? approaches for tackling those. So we're quite, we're very, we're a scientific software company. So we're very driven by what is the science we're trying to help with. So we're very problem statement first, then think about the technology second. But you're right in the sense that if you always go down that route, there are probably outliers of the technology that's bleeding edge that you might never think about. One of the things we're going to start doing next year actually is to put together what's called a tech radar, technology radar. And they're quite useful for being able to decide what's going to be your term, long-term future tech to be, you know, to be looking to adopt, to be potentially looking to retire and replace, things to have on your radar for slightly longer term as well. So these are the things we should be experimenting with and prototyping as well. That's probably something I think we'll kick off in quarter one next year to develop that tech. We don't have one yet, but I think that's something that we'll be pushing for next year. So we can start to do that, as I said, a little bit more codified. It's still quite, you know, what are we looking at? But 
and, and what areas we want to focus on. And there's a little bit of touchy feely. This looks like it's something we might put in this category that there are other organizations help you with that. But yeah, I think a tech radar will help us. I was actually going to, well, it's a, it's a nice lead into the next question, which is how you keep track of those emerging technologies that you're going to put on that radar. Is it, do you have, is there a place where you consistently learn about new and emerging technologies of interest? Is it through something like BioArchive or Hacker News or something? Where do you make, how do you make sure that you're not blindsided by emerging technologies? So I, I, I'm all of that. I'm a, I'm in favor of, you know, there's many outlets really, and I, I don't particularly favor one over the other. I look at, so yes, I look at literature. I follow certain conferences, still look at some of the academic and industry conferences. They're pretty good as well for getting you, actually giving you a deeper dive as to what's going on in certain areas. So I still follow those things. There's plenty of social media that's actually really useful. There's plenty of good Twitter feeds, like some of the MIT tech stuff's pretty good. There's quite a lot of good social media feeds. There's some good threads on places like Reddit. Some of the tech threads on Reddit can be actually really good and really deep as well. I mentioned the tech radars. You can, there's, there's plenty of organizations publish tech radars as well to give you a feel for what technology, what companies are doing, et cetera. So it's a blend of all of that. There's not one, there's not one source that I go to and trust, but yeah, all of that, I would say. Just soaking in it like os osmosis. Yeah, totally. Complete information overload. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Eventually some of it has to sink in. Uh, yeah. So next, next one talk about speed. So this is something that maybe people who come from backgrounds other than health, potentially joy veg site, aren't as familiar with, and then they learn about it. And that is that bugs in our data, we have much lower tolerance for bugs in data or qualitative issues with data because researchers are basing healthcare decisions on that information. And it's at the same time, we're in a very competitive environment. So we want to make sure that we're constantly moving our technology forward. So how do you balance this need to move fast as a hypergrowth company with the need to maintain impeccable data integrity because we're working in the health space? I think the simple answer to that is we just work hand in glove with scientists. I think that's the key thing. So we have, a we're fortunate we have a lot of, we have a scientific team and a lot of really well-trained scientists, highly qualified scientists within BenchSite, as well as a good relationship with our users who are also often mostly scientists too. So that evaluation, that feedback is, is pretty rapid. It's a very tight coupling between what we try to output and the feedback of what it is they're looking for, whether it's right or wrong. Uh, and in some ways it's as complex and as simple as that really. Our power users, our domain experts are close to us. They are our quality assurance. Obviously we have our own tests and internally that we have to run, but getting that feedback from those people that we aim to serve is, is the key thing for us. Yeah. As well as the usual QA software company should do. We, we don't forget that we're a software science, you know, a, a scientific software AI company and mm. the, the people we serve, the scientists are the ones who will guide us as to whether or not what we're doing is trending right or wrong. And just as you were saying that, one other thing I, I thought about is that even if it maybe takes us, who knows, maybe 10%, 5 10% longer to get something to market because we're dealing with health data, the impact of our technology, because we're bringing that data or that, that tool to a fairly tool light or place that has never had this kind of enabling tools before, the impact is so exponential on the speed. So it might take us an extra 5, 10 days to get something to market, but you're going to save somebody three months once that tool actually makes it. And so I think that you still just get so far ahead that it's worth all those extra QA steps. 
Yeah. Okay. Next question for you on tenacity. So here's one for you. If you think back to like machine learning and, and the ImageNet contest and AlexNet and all that, you had Hinton and others were working for decades in a desert of funding and interest and so on. And, but still believe they were very tenacious in believing that at the end of this, there was going to be something valuable and they were going to be able to make it work. But sometimes abandoning a technology is the right thing to do. And so how do you decide what's your approach to know when you need to abandon some technological approach because it's just not bearing fruit um, versus you just need to double down and, and eventually you'll be successful. And I don't know if you have any examples of that from your experience. Um. Yeah, probably a few. So I'm a big fan of moving towards action. So having a bias for action. So trying things earlier in the process, if you're thinking about applying a technology or trying something for the first time, assessing and learning lessons from that, even if it doesn't quite work out, um, rather than delaying and planning a bit longer, especially if action can be taken quickly and it's possible to try these techs. So I think you can learn a lot from the trying and the doing. And also sometimes the failing as well. I think you can learn, you know, sometimes more from doing that and trying and it not working out. And then you learn and you're in a better position next time around. And you can also often undo the stuff that isn't quite right. So trying something that doesn't quite work, you can often just undo that and actually replace it with something more conventional or learn and improve what you do as well. That's a big part of it for me, I think. It's something that I always try to encourage in the teams. Let's try this and see. And then we'll do a short duration and we'll look at the results and then we'll make another decision once we have more data ultimately. So that's a, I find that a really effective way of being able to help make decisions. And some of those decisions are, let's go, let's, let's do this. It looks good. It doesn't look great. Let's abandon it. I've definitely had examples in the past where I've suggested, I personally suggested an approach to doing something with a machine learning. I can't go into a lot of the details in fairness, but yeah, I've come up with approaches for doing things with a machine learning model involving the way we looked at the windows for inputting vectors and we tried it. For a few weeks, it just didn't work at all. <laughs> it was much worse than not doing it, in fact. That was fine. That was absolutely fine. So we didn't do that. We ditched that. We went a completely different way and that one worked. But that's fine. I think it's okay. And what we learned from that was that approach doesn't really work. Mm -hmm. um, so we will not touch that again for a while. Actually, as it happens, there is an approach that's similar to the one I'm not really allowed to talk about now that's actually published in open domain now. So there is a way of doing it. It's just that I think the ways we were trying were not quite right. That's on me, ultimately. But I think trying it and having it not work quickly that led us to a better decision and led, it, led us to a decision much more rapidly. And I think that's important. So I think the learning is, yeah, as you say, you do learn a lot from doing. Yeah. Oh yeah. You, you learn one more way that the thing you want to have done doesn't work. And that takes you, you knock off one thing on your list, try the next thing. I think it also leads you to, to, to build and architect in a very modular way, because then you can experiment with a lot of different elements of that modular structure without necessarily undermining the whole thing. Uh, last question for you in this speed round series here is around transparency. I told you we'd come back to it. So we're building ever more complicated machine learning models and you get to a point where you have things like GPT-3, which is billions or trillions of parameters, and you really have absolutely no idea why it's doing what it's doing and sometimes have no idea where it could potentially go wrong. And so there's a lot of content moderation that OpenAI had to add in after the fact, once they recognized that GPT-3 has a tendency to spew racist, sexist language at people. So as we continue to build these more complicated models, how do we avoid the risks of black boxes? And at the same time, how do we avoid being handicapping the machine learning models by always expecting them to provide a degree of algorithmic transparency that just may not 
be necessary or, or may just put too high of a burden on that technology. Yeah, I mean, we, we talked about this a little bit earlier. I think it's difficult. I, there's obviously no easy way at the moment to understand what's going on in these deep learning networks. You know, they're, they're so big and complex. So mapping all of those internal functions to something that we can interpret and understand is, is incredibly hard. I don't know if it's actually properly impossible, but it probably is close to it. Certainly where we are now, it's not possible. So I think we have to accept that. Um, and I think we just have to go in with that understanding and say, okay, what are we willing to accept and what are we not willing to accept? And that let's try and strike the balance. So there are approaches that are very amenable to having explanations and transparency. We use some too, we use quite a lot of those things. So the heuristic based approaches, and there's good advantages to that as well. So I think they're good. We can offer explanations to what's going on and it's, it's pretty understandable. So they're great. I think for doing that. There's also tasks where deep learning is a better fit. Image recognition in particular, deep learning always wins those competitions to better fit for that. So if it's a good fit for purpose, then we probably should use that. Even if the cost is we can't explain it as easily, just because the gain is so big. What we can do though, is look at the outputs and we can understand from the output, we're, we're putting something through it and here's the output it's classifying in one direction. Here's the output it's classifying in another direction. Is it consistent in how it always does that? And when we put it through its trials and therefore do, can we start to draw conclusions as to what it's actually doing? Not even anecdotally from the output. I think we can, I think we can do something with that. And that, that helps draw some levels of explanation as to what's going on, even if you don't have the guts. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's like watching, you know, somebody play a sport or, you know, observing them completing a task or whatever. You, you might not know exactly what's going through their head, the way they strike the ball. You can start to work out that if they hit it this way, it's probably going to bend in this particular direction. So I don't really know what they're thinking or how they're doing that, but I can work out whether it's going to go left or right, depending on how they're sort of running up to the ball kind of thing. Mm -hmm. so I think you can do that through observation and that helps a bit, but I think we, yeah, we need to understand the balance and decide what we're willing to accept. It strikes me that in future, we might have a career as algorithmic interrogator or algorithmic psychologists trying to understand if you give me your algorithm, I'll give it some inputs, determine the outputs, and then I'll tell you what's, you know, what's most likely going on. And that becomes a whole new career. Uh, I want to wrap it up because I, I thank you. We've almost at an hour now. I've just got a couple more questions for you. And the first one, I know you're not going to be able to answer in any great detail, but what are you most excited about right now with your work at Benchsci? Um, Right now, so that I mean, there's lots of stuff. I think a couple of primary things. I think the team, the kind of the hyper growth one at the minute, which means the teams are growing really quickly. The scope of what we're trying to tackle is is growing and is also very exciting. I think we'll have a lot of impact. I think that's pretty good. I think we have some awesome new stuff in the data and the machine learning work we're doing that I'm you know largely involved with. Through really the ramping up, I think 2022 is going to be a massive year. For, you know, for what we do and particularly with my eyes on, on those teams and then all, all the launch of the new things we've got planned, I think is, yeah, super exciting as well. So that's, mm -hmm. that's pretty cool. More to come there. We will be making yeah. some announcements in the new year and to help with your work, you're, you're recruiting right now, specifically in the UK. So you're based in the UK and we're now looking to fill a number uh, of roles there. Do you want to just maybe mention some of the things that you're looking to fill and, and where people could learn more about them? Yeah, I think we're, we are recruiting across the board. So th there are plenty of roles across the board in, in Benchside that we would hire into the UK. Specifically, I'm looking for machine learning engineers, people who do ML ops, people who are data infrastructural engineers as well. So people who can write pipelines and, and run pipelines, can program databases or query databases with SQL, all that sort of stuff. So anyone who's in that space, that's specifically where I'm 
looking to to hire into yeah and yeah the good place to go also if you visit the bench size jobs website is good and you can also just find us on linkedin as well a lot of the jobs are listed on the bench size linkedin as well so any of those places is a good place to start great all right i just got one more for you which is whether i asked everything you thought i should or if there are any questions i didn't ask you wish i asked or if there's anything else you want to add um what did you I get you didn't ask me about being the only UK employee. <laughs> well, okay, so hopefully that's not for a lot for very long. <laughs> hopefully not. No, but well, that's been good. So it's the first time I've had a job where the HQ is like not on my home continent, but it's good. I'm still spelling lots of things with an S and not a Z though. So that's yeah. you didn't, ask me, you didn't ask me about my band either, but that's like another <laughs> wow. I mean, we have a lot of stuff to cover. You know, for, actually, fortunately, <laughs> we're, uh, we're a Canadian company. So for our internal communications, we sometimes will use British and Canadian spellings. So maybe that's a little bit more familiar. I think the <laughs> hardest thing for me has always been the time zones. I feel like I probably almost booked this interview with you at, at, sometime that was the middle of the night for you. But just getting sensitive around that is, is something yeah. that will, but it'll take, it'll happen over time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Everyone's very welcoming. So it's been, yeah, really interesting couple of months for sure. That's great. Well, James, thank you so much for your time and for joining us and bringing all of your experience and for chatting with me about experiments with things like GPG-3 and being open to those conversations. It's, it's been really interesting all the times we've had a chance to talk. So thanks. No problem. Pleasure, Simon. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think Fast podcast with special guest James Malone. If you enjoyed what you heard, perhaps you'd be a good fit at Benchside. You can learn more about our culture and open roles at careers.benchside.com. As mentioned in the show, we're now recruiting globally, including in the UK. Until next time, stay safe and think fast.